0: Welcome to Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger, the podcast for anyone who writes. Whatever types of writing you do, our goal at Coffee, Tea or Something Stronger is to give you a shot of writing inspiration. And we do it by picking the brains of all kinds of professional writers about their writing and the writing life. I'm your host, Claire Lynch, and in this episode I talk to Alan Barker, a speechwriter and trainer of other speechwriters. In our chat, Alan talked about all the elements that go into making a great speech, from capturing the speaker's unique voice to structuring your speech for maximum impact. In the meantime, a big shout-out to Liat and Sasha for your reviews on Stitcher. Your support really means a huge amount to me. And to other listeners out there, if you enjoy the show, please do leave a review wherever you listen, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, or another platform. Now, let's get straight to the interview. So, Alan Barker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tell me about what you do, who you've written speeches for, who you may have trained to be a speechwriter?
1: Well, I got into speechwriting, like many people do, I suppose, through a kind of side door. Um, I used to be an actor, so I'm very interested in performance. And for the last two decades or so, I have been principally a trainer of communication skills with a particular emphasis on writing. Uh, Put those two things together, and you find an interest in speechwriting, I guess, Um, and so my initial uh, entrance into the world of speechwriting was being invited to join something called the European Speechwriter Network uh, which is run by a colleague of mine called Brian Jenner and uh, it's a growing community of speechwriters uh, from Europe and also all over the world but it's focused on Europe and we run conferences twice a year And I also run training courses for them. And out of that work, I've become involved both with speechwriters themselves and some of the people that they write speeches for or try to write speeches for. And uh, by a process of kind of one thing leading to another, um, I find myself uh, working with CEOs and chairs of uh, large, let's say, membership organisations, Um, I do some work with uh, people who write for politicians in the London area and, uh, to some extent, uh, in the national arena in the UK as well. Um, And I also continually meet and work with uh, other professional speechwriters, so I'm helping them to do their job better.
0: So, um, in that training work, what have you found to be... The challenges that speech writers face or newbie speech writers face when they're trying to draft a speech?
1: I think overwhelmingly the main challenge is finding a way of working uh, with the person who's going to deliver the speech. Uh, in the speechwriter world that person is often called the principal and everything really derives from having some kind of reasonable working relationship with that person there are lots of people who write speeches for speakers whom they literally never meet or speak to. They uh, simply produce the speech text and it goes up through the, 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 the hierarchies and the labyrinths of the organisation. Um, and they never even find out how well the speech was, was received or um, what, what the speaker thought of it. It's... It, must be a an appalling way to work. Others have very close relationships with their speakers, um, and very good working relationships, and often uh, working relationships that manage to bypass the hierarchies of the organisation within which they work. And then you have everything in between. And, of course, some speechwriters write speeches for themselves. Uh, most of the work that I do, I suppose, is in the broadly political arena, but we're also talking about um, writing speeches for CEOs of large corporations or NGOs. Uh, We're also talking about freelance speechwriters who hire their services to anyone who comes along. Uh, And we're also talking about just ordinary people who are writing speeches for special occasions, weddings, funerals, um, christenings and bar mitzvahs and so on and so forth. So it's a very, Broad kind of area, um, it all starts from that relationship. I think that's that's where you have to begin.
0: So, as someone who's done a lot of work in the corporate world, I'm very familiar with the sort of gatekeeperization mm. that that you tend to face, where you're you're working through various marketing people or or assistant people why do you think it's so important to have that direct contact with the principal is it about capturing their voice
1: yes it is partly um this business of going through uh, you know layers and uh, various departments in in organizations the specific effect that of course that has on a speech text is that the text gets completely mangled and uh, loses any sense of the specific voice uh, of the person for whom it's being written
0: messages get inserted
1: uh, yeah and 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 they are inserted in ways that are <laughs> technically unspeakable <laughs> uh, so uh, the the whole business of finding the 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 rhythm of the piece the tone of the piece as you say the um, uh, fi- finding the voice of the speaker uh, gets lost amidst all this um, corporate guff, you know, corporate (laughs) stuff that goes on. And I think, in a way, that's part of a deeper and a wider problem, which is to do with how we manage to write texts that can be spoken.
0: I always think, even if the text is not going to be delivered or read aloud, you should always bear in mind what the spoken language sounds like. And I I always feel, certainly in my own writing practice, I Try and write for the ear.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah.
0: And, you know, any copywriter will tell you the best writing is conversational.
1: Yes, yes. I think this is very interesting because most people come to writing, of course, as a technical skill that they have to learn at school or otherwise. And they see it, therefore, as utterly different to the skill of speaking, which is something that we don't need to be taught. Most of us don't need to be taught. We, we learn it simply by os- osmosis, like a sponge, mm-hmm. yeah. But the, the worlds of speaking and writing are becoming ever fuzzier, aren't mm. they, uh, with the new technologies that we're using. So there is a, a great deal of confusion about what makes for um, a speakable sentence, let alone a, you know, a full speech. And that's an area I'm particularly interested in. I, I often talk to people and work with people, trying to get them to consider how they could make their speech speaker-proof, so that so that it will work, in a sense, whoever speaks it, and perhaps even in whatever way they speak it, there are maybe some elements of a speech that will be that you can build into the text that that at a very basic level, will make it work, whatever happens to it when it gets to delivery.
0: So could you give me some examples of the sorts of things that that you feel makes a piece of text speakable?
1: Yeah. There was a, a, a political speechwriter who wrote a book recently in which he said that every sentence in a speech has to fulfil two criteria. It has to be A speech that you or the speaker could speak in conversation. And it has to be a sentence that you could imagine putting into a poem. Every sentence in the speech has to fulfil both of those criteria.
0: Two very different registers, conversation and poetry.
1: Ah, well, um, depends on the conversation, I guess. (laughs) Depends on the poem, I guess. Um, If you think of Eliot, for example, T.S. Eliot... He's using very uh, demotic, uh, conversational kind of language, but he is constructing rhythms with that language that make it poetry. Um, if you think of uh, uh, performance poets or uh, hip hop or um, uh, other poets, uh, poets who who's, who speak in a non standard English, whatever you want to call it, um, their relationship between writing and speaking is very close. And those lines could be lines that they would speak on the street or in their in parties or in their homes, whatever, and they could form parts of a poem. So uh, what won't work, the sentences that won't fulfil both of those criteria, are the sentences that are written in large corporations or government departments... by people who, don't, who aren't thinking about trying to, to make something speakable. This reveals an even deeper kind of issue... which is that we're, we're getting a big kind of division in our public language... between more or less unspeakable, technocratic, emotionless prose... which is written with the very best of intentions... And for laudable purposes, uh, at seeking to explain decisions and um, give instructions and so on and so forth, on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have the rise of a very, very um, powerful, emotional, so called authentic speaking, which is the province of populists and certain presidents that one could think of in the world, um, which verges, indeed crosses over, in his case, very often, into the, frankly, inarticulate. But it's accepted. It's accepted by by his constituency. So there is this gap between these two, you use the word registers, these two very, very different registers. And speechwriters are often trying to find the middle ground between those two registers to find a register that will still work with an audience and I think that that's more than a speech writing problem that's a deep problem about public language and about how we use language to run our societies and govern ourselves and so on and so forth.
0: It's interesting you talk about that difference between technocratic language and I think what we're talking about here is rhetoric which is often about making our language sound appealing to the ears through the use of rhythm and repetition and balance, um, which is uh, populists are very good at. One of my clients recently was um, a an organisation that is very close to the Brexit situation, and I took in some examples of speeches. In fact, f- one from um, that had been delivered by a European commissioner which was incredibly technocratic. Yes. Every other word was an abstract noun. Yes. Whole sentences were just abstract nouns. Mm. And then I took in an example of a speech by Nigel Farage, Mm -hmm. who, whatever you may think of him, is a master of rhetoric, because, of course, he was classically trained. (laughs) This idea that he's a man of the common people is Mm. nonsense. Mm. Um, And they read the two pieces, and they were like, this is why Brexit happened.
1: Yes. Um, that's very, a very understandable response. Um, that the European Union, the European Commission perhaps in particular, is a, a very good example of an organisation that, through its use of language, is simply not connecting with European citizens. And that, is, that was a problem before what I consider to be the catastrophe of Brexit. We we saw that as a problem then, and within the network, we're working all the time with people who who write speeches in the commission, and they are you know they 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 tell us about these problems all the time. It's not a universal problem within the commission. It very much depends on the commissioner, or, or the particular Directorate General that they work for, but it is certainly. An issue, and of course, you're also dealing with English as an international language yes. there, so um, there's there's that added problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know when I when I studied European law, um, the difference in the way European judgments are written versus judgments in English law mm. are just mm. huge difference, um, and yeah, they seem to be more writerly rather than speakable.
1: Yes. Uh, you use the word rhetoric. I, w- I wouldn't say that... Uh, I-, I would always want to expand the use of the word rhetoric to include the, the kind of um, technocratic language that we're discussing here. Um, uh, rhetoric is, for me, a much more um, neutral and technical kind of set of skills than perhaps people will often associate with the word. It
0: has negative connotations in the age. It, it, it always Trump has, yeah, yeah.
1: And, and, yeah, and always has done. I mean, yeah. ever since ever since the word was invented, there's mm. been it's had a kind of shady reputation in certain quarters. But I think it's important that we understand that uh, rhetoric isn't just uh, the, the heightened language of uh, <laughs> a demagogue or indeed a great orator, um, but it's also the language that we all use. Um, in different circumstances, and we can understand the effect of the different registers that we use precisely by studying that subject. And if there's one thing that I and many of my colleagues are very keen on, it is that the subject is uh, simply taught more yes. um, in our schools. Yeah. I mean, are... I
0: certainly use rhetoric all the time in my corporate writing, and whenever a client compliments me on producing. Something that sounds lovely. It's just using very old-fashioned techniques that you would find in Cicero or wherever. Yes, yes,
1: absolutely, and and indeed, uh, these are precisely the techniques that we can use uh, in order to help speechwriters do a better job. I mean, the the two thousand years of the rhetorical tradition give us vast amounts um, to work with. In that respect, so when I'm working with a speechwriter or indeed working with a speaker to produce a speech, I will be going back to those same techniques and the kind of rhetorical method I think that um, has stood the test of time for a you know couple of thousand years.
0: Imagine I've been given the task of giving a TED talk or a presentation to the board or even a wedding speech. We might go and add the rhetoric at a later stage but where would i start
1: and uh, um, claire you would not add the rhetoric at the later <laughs> stage. you you would begin with rhetoric because the first thing that rhetoric the rhetorical method would ask you is what kind of speech is this in the classical tradition there are three kinds of speech mm-hmm. yeah. um you clearly already know all this but um for those listening who might not be aware of this um the, 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 uh, the classical tradition tells us that there are deliberative speeches, uh, uh, legal speeches, forensic speeches, and uh, a third category which goes by the name of epideictic or ceremonial. So deliberative speeches are essentially the speeches of a politician and they are concerned with choosing what to do in the future. Uh, judicial speeches are the speeches, as you might guess, uh, of the law courts in which a barrister or a lawyer seeks to persuade a jury that um, something in the past has either happened or not happened or has been of a certain kind uh, and is therefore um um and that therefore the person being tried is guilty or or innocent and the ceremonial speech you mentioned a wedding speech well a wedding speech is a classic example of a ceremonial speech focuses on the present and it focuses on present values and um it focuses on a person or a thing being honoured in some way. It could be a person, it could be a graduation class, it could be an organisation, it could be an institution. So the first question you would ask is, what kind of speech is this? In, a, in, in kind of ordinary, kind of modern terms, what's the purpose of this speech? What are you trying to do with it? Having decided what kind of speech you are producing, you would then think about your audience because if there's uh, one really important point that every speechwriter needs to understand is that it is that speeches are never about anything. uh, A speaker is not speaking about something, a speaker is speaking to the audience and seeking to influence them in some way. So just as there's a relationship between the speechwriter and the speaker that is vital in this task, so The relationship between the speaker and the audience is vital. So we need to think about who the audience is, where they've come from, what their background is, how many of them there are, why they're there, what their expectations of this speech or event might be. You could ask three very simple questions. Um, What do I, up being the speaker, what do I want the audience to think at the end of the speech? What do I want them to feel? and what do I want them to do? If you focus in on those three questions and get some pretty clear answers to those, you can then begin to focus your thinking because that's what we're trying to do at this early stage. We're thinking broadly, but we're trying to create a sense of focus. And the ultimate aim of that focusing is to come up with a message, by which I mean what you could call a take-home message the one sentence you want your audience to have on their lips when you leave. So you begin with these three questions. What do you want your audience to think? What do you want them to feel? What do you you want them to do? In all of these cases, we are talking about persuading. And rhetoric is very much an art of persuasion. In the modern corporate world and political world, but in the corporate world more so, I think, uh, a lot of speeches are also given that are not intended to be persuasive they're intended to be explanatory in some way. And those speeches will probably be shading into what we might call presentations rather than speeches, and they will have slide decks with innumerable bullet points on them and so on and so forth. As scientific uh, presentations, you mentioned TED Talks, they they would seem to have the purpose of uh, explaining rather than persuading. I think that's a particular challenge because speeches are not good for giving information. After all, your audience is going to forget most of the information you give them. They may, if you're lucky, remember the one take-home message. So I think in a lot of cases in the modern world, the rhetorical tradition that we work with needs perhaps to be supplemented with some more modern thoughts about how you explain clearly and whether you could invest your explanations with some kind of persuasive colour or element that would make... The material more compelling, more interesting for your audience. So you're thinking about how you want to influence your audience, what you want them to think, what you want them to feel, what you want them to do. I also like to work with people on establishing the topic of the speech rather than the subject. So the topic is the position where the speaker stands in relation to the subject. what what their position is, what their perspective on it is, what their point of view on the subject is. Um, The word comes from the Greek word topos meaning place. So the the topic is where I stand, where the speaker stands Um, uh, and that gives them both a sense of their objective and, and a clearer sense of what they want to say to their audience. They're not just talking about their subject. They have an angle on it, what the journalists would call an angle.
0: So could you give me an example of the distinction between topic and subject?
1: Yes. Well, are we allowed to talk about Brexit?
0: (laughs) Well, I think we've already talked about Brexit. We have already (laughs) talked about Brexit. So if your
1: subject is Brexit, well, what's your point of view on Brexit? The topic is where you stand in relation to that subject. And a shortcut to your topic would be to find a phrase either beginning with the word how or the word why. So, why Brexit is a good idea might be your topic. Uh, Or uh, how we can extricate ourselves from the parliamentary quagmire that we are currently facing in relation to Brexit might be your topic. So, simply creating a phrase with the word why or how at the beginning of it, it it gives you a shortcut, it gives you an immediate sense of, of... what what your position on this is, what, what, what line you want to take.
0: How or why rather than what.
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, who is that uh, consultant who talks about what, how and why?
0: Um, there's certainly Simon Sine- Sinek. Simon Sinek, yeah. he's yeah. the one. Start with the why.
1: Start with the why. Don't start with the what or indeed the how, but go for the bullseye. Start with the why and then work outwards mm. because it's the why that your audience is interested in. It's the so what. Your audience is, is sitting there waiting for something meaningful to happen. And you absolutely don't want your audience at any point to be asking, so what? What's the point of this? You have to start with what the point is. Um, if it's a deliberative speech, the point is what we should do right now. If it's a a judicial speech, then the point is, is this person guilty or innocent? If it's a ceremonial speech, then the question is, why should we be celebrating these two people getting married? Why should we be celebrating uh, this person's life at their funeral? Why should we be celebrating the, the graduation of this generation? or whatever it may be. So that's the, yeah, we're, we're, finding, we're finding the meaning, aren't we? We're finding the so, and we're always looking for the so what.
0: Is this episode inspiring you to be a better writer? If so, visit my blog goodcopybadcopy.co.uk for a wealth of writing tips and to claim your free copy of my ebook, The 200 Writing Tips That'll Get You Writing Like a Pro. And if you're enjoying the show, do remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Your support really means a lot to me because it helps get the show noticed. Now, back to the interview. As an actor,
1: mm. you don't
0: just specialise in writing, you also specialise in delivery. Um, Can you maybe talk a little bit about how to deliver the
1: speech or a speech? Uh, Yes. Well, let's talk about it in in the context of the speechwriter. Many are the speechwriters who sit at the back of the hall and want to curl up into a little ball as they hear their words mangled (laughs) by a frankly incompetent speaker. And it is quite interesting just how many leaders in our society are actually not very good speakers, because I suppose the ability to speak is not considered a leaderly quality in the way that it would have been in Cicero's time, or even during the, well, certainly during the Renaissance. So it is sometimes possible that a speechwriter can act as a kind of coach for their speaker and help them to deliver more effectively. But I hadn't I hadn't ever heard a speechwriter claiming that they were able to get their speaker to rehearse, for example. In you know, in the corporate or the political world, this is just really not done.
0: So often the CEO or whoever might be going on stage and that's the first time he's delivered these words
1: it may well be the first time he or she has even read the words and there are many examples uh, of of people you know misreading the script I was told of um, one right by one writer they, they told me themselves um, about writing a speech at great speed for a um, someone or other well an anonymous commissioner uh, and the speech was delivered um, th- th- through through cyberspace over to Singapore. And he hadn't, the, sp- the writer hadn't had time to write the, the nice introductory remarks. So he just put in square brackets, <gasps> say something nice about Singapore. Oh, and, no. And that's no. what the speaker did. He stood up and said, say something nice about <sighs> Singapore. Um, we have the story of Corbyn, don't we? Not so long ago, reading out the words, pause for laughter. Oh no. Um, I missed that. So, uh, as an actor, as an ex actor, I do find it astonishing that anyone who seeks to stand up and speak in front of an audience doesn't feel that they should practice. It would be like a pianist. Uh, it's turning, like reading
0: every concert. T- turning <laughs> up at Wigmore Hall
1: without having practiced the music. It, it, yeah. it is kind of incredible. Um, What we can do about that, I'm not quite sure. There are, I think, very often multiple layers of uh, fear and inhibition in senior figures that it would take a rather special person to be able to peel away and work with. Uh, I've been fortunate in working with some people who are very keen to uh, develop their skills, both in producing the text with me and in delivering it well. Uh, But I think it is quite rare. So um, the relationship between um, writing the script and then delivering it, one thing that the speechwriter can do is lay the speech out well so that it's easy to read. And I don't just mean, you know, in nice big type, though I do mean that. I mean separating every sentence so that you can see every sentence um, separately. And with longer sentences, maybe breaking them up and I I often suggest indenting them across the page so that the three parts of a three-part sentence are there visible on the page so that the speaker can see that rhythm just as you would with certain kinds of poetry, um, dramatic poetry in particular. Uh, That way the speaker has a sense perhaps of how they can pace themselves through the through the speech but the the speaker also needs to be able to understand how the voice works we have a prime minister at the moment who has great difficulty sometimes in simply keeping her voice yeah Um, she doesn't know how to use it yeah Do you
0: suspect she's not breathing correctly because she has these terrible problems with her throat?
1: Yeah, it's to do with the throat being constricted Mm -hmm. and, well, for goodness sake, anyone in that kind of position, but particularly our current Prime Minister in her current position, could be excused for, you know, having to deal with stress. But it is to do with breathing, it's to do with being able to do what's known as diaphragmatic breathing, Mm -hmm. which allows you to support the voice... With what what one can envisage as a column of air, mm-hmm. um, and uh, keeping the uh, keeping the neck muscles reasonably open, uh, understanding just a little bit about vocal anatomy, speaking in itself is the product of putting stress on your vocal cords. So uh, your your vocal cords are only relaxed when you're all silent, which for some of us is not very often, and so. <laughs> um, You need to understand that whenever you are speaking, you are inevitably putting those chords under stress. So you need to find ways of dealing with that. Uh, And then articulating the sounds with the the vocal cavity and the lips and the tongue and the teeth and all the rest of it.
0: Any tips for dealing with stress?
1: Well, it all comes back to breathing. When we're stressed, we tend to breathe in. So the best and most immediate way to de-stress is to breathe out. Now, obviously, you can't breathe out without breathing in. Even I know that. So the trick is to do what we call 7-11 breathing. You breathe out for longer than you breathe in. Uh, the numbers 7 and 11 are indicative. You don't have to, and it doesn't matter how fast you you count them. The point is that you breathe out for longer than you breathe in. I'm told that what this does is awaken the parasympathetic nervous system rather than the sympathetic nervous system Uh, so it inevitably relaxes you if you become relaxed then your body becomes more relaxed all over which means that it acts as a a more effective resonator and uh, your voice literally has more body uh, which means that you will sound more authoritative it will also help you to slow down. But it won't help—that—that that will help you to de-stress. What you then need to do is make sure that you are articulating clearly. And the quick way to articulate clearly is to uh, speak a short passage of your speech with your tongue sticking as far out of your mouth as possible. <laughs> this is—I can demonstrate this, uh, and I am now demonstrating it. And this is the way that it would sound. But your task, of course, while doing so, is to make sure that your words are as clearly understood as they are when your tongue is inside your mouth. What you are doing in doing this is getting all the musculature of your mouth warmed up and working clearly. Um, And it has an instant effect. It immediately makes your consonants crisper and um, makes you um, clearer and easier to understand. So breathing and sticking your tongue out of your mouth. Both activities that are probably best done backstage before you start.
0: Yes, and getting that high-powered CEO to do it might be a challenge.
1: Indeed, indeed. Um, But then again, what you want is a speech that reveals something true about the person, or at least something that the audience will accept as true. So... Very often a speech works better precisely when the speaker reveals something about themselves that normally they would hide away. And obviously that's a risky business and it's not necessarily something that every speaker would want to do or should do. But that is, in the end, one of the elements of a good speech, I think, something that the good speech reveals something about the speaker that the audience accepts as authentic. We're, we're obsessed with authenticity. I was watching the new Blade Runner film. And of course, Philip K. Dick is a, a writer who's obsessed with what's real and what isn't real, what's authentic and what's fake or manufactured. So we, we have this obsession in our culture with, with authenticity. But authenticity, we tend to think of authenticity as being to do with self-expression and being spontaneous. And of course, speeches are anything but, with the exception of those of President Trump, perhaps. <laughs> um, a good speech is anything but. It is, it is considered, it is crafted, and it um, hopefully is rehearsed. And all of that demonstrates respect for your audience. I was listening at a recent conference to Sarah Hurwitz, who is Michelle Obama's speechwriter, and she made a very simple equation. She said authenticity equals preparation plus respect. And you have to have those two things for true authenticity to appear. And I think that's that's a lesson that is good to learn.
0: And Michelle Obama's speeches are so authentic that there's a little bit of shock there to realize that someone writes them for her. Uh,
1: yeah, um I think that that's tr- that that's true generally, you know, me- uh, you get into the back of a cab and you 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 start <laughs> chatting to the cabbie and you mention, I don't know, someone David Cameron speechwriter or something and they will say blimey because he's a London cabbie. He will say um, I never knew David Cameron had a speechwriter. Uh there is still this public perception that speeches are either made up on the hoof or that they are made that they are written by the politicians themselves so there's great shock when for example to mention uh, jeremy corbyn again uh, it is suddenly revealed that a portion of his speech is lifted from somewhere else quite in 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 the instance that i'm thinking of quite legitimately actually he wasn't stealing from another person's speech he was taking a piece of text from uh, a speechwriter's website that the speechwriter had made available um, for use by Quite anyone extent. who wanted, anyone who wanted it, and so Corbyn did. What was noticeable in that particular instance was that that piece, that particular passage, stood out as being very well written from all the dross surrounding right. it, and and the, the 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 shift in register there in that in that particular speech was kind of it was a, a double D clutch of you know considerable proportions.
0: What is your favourite speech?
1: Oh, yes. That's such a difficult question. The good one that, I, that I've heard most recently is my favourite speech. I mean, there are speeches in literature, of course, and in popular culture. Uh, you know, there are Jed Bartlett speeches in the West Wing that one could watch over and over again. There's a wonderful speech in What um, Mad Men, about the, which is now famous, about the, the slide projector, the carousel which is a a speech, it is a speech, it's a speech given as part of a pitch to a client in an advertising agency. Um, I was very impressed with um, uh, Jacinda Ahern's speech uh, recently after the appalling attacks on the mosques in New Zealand. Um, That, I thought, was well considered, well judged. But speeches date very quickly, and they are very sight-specific. The Greeks called it keros. There is a... The, the good speaker speaks kerotically. That means keros is the moment in which something happens, the moment in which you give a speech. A good speaker always responds to the keros. Jacinda Ahern did that. I'm always struck with the, the nature of the speech that Her Majesty the Queen gave about a week after Princess Diana died the royal family was silent for quite a long period after that tragedy and there were increasingly strident calls that that the queen should say something when she finally came on
0: which went against all protocol didn't it to actually speak in that moment
1: uh, yes and shes and i remember that first line of course we you know having seen the queen the film the queen <laughs> It's quite possible that Tony Blair wrote the whole thing. But there you are. That's part of the business. Um, She spoke in a way, in a register again. We talk about this word register. Uh, She spoke in a register that we don't normally associate with her. And it came across as right and true for that moment. Goodness knows whether it was authentic, but it it worked for that keros, it worked for that moment. That's about the closest I'm going to get to giving you an answer to, to, you know, the question, what's my favourite speech? There are all these favourite speeches, there are all these famous speeches that are anthologised. There's a very good new anthology edited by Sean Usher um, that's recently come out called Speeches of Note, which includes... Some well-known speeches and lots of others that aren't so well-known, including um, a lot more speeches by women, for example. And Kermit the Frog is in there. Really? Yes. um, Um. He is included in that particular anthology. It's a very beautiful book. I have to say that I don't think speechwriters spend a lot of time reading famous speeches in anthologies. Do you think they should? No, not necessarily. I don't think that's quite the way to do it. You, yes, obviously, it's very helpful and useful to see how speakers at other times and in other places responded. Let me use that word again. They responded to the keros and they made the effects that they had. But the whole point about speeches is that the effects aren't replicable. So it, it, it's, you, you would learn indirectly from reading Queen Elizabeth at Tilbury, or Martin Luther King, inevitably, or Nelson Mandela, or Lloyd George, who was a great orator, or Roosevelt. You would learn indirectly, but it would be very, or Obama, or indeed Michelle Obama, but it would be very difficult then to translate that directly into your craft for the particular speaker that you're working with. Far more effective, in, in my experience, is to get the speaker that you're working with to talk about what they want to say. If you possibly can, audio record it and pick up, discover some of their natural rhythms uh, and some of the natural, some of the, the phrases that they like to use and then try and work those in to what you're creating. You're trying to create the best possible version of your speaker. So you're trying to create the best possible version of the way they speak it has to be conversational in the sense that it is in their voice but it also has to be broadly poetic in the sense that it has to be the sentences have to be shaped sculpted uh, and they have to be in a, some sort of coherent order uh, we haven't even talked about that mm-hmm how you order a speech how you create the structure of the speech itself but you're you're creating something that works for that speaker at that moment with that audience it's really disposable
0: can we just quickly touch on the question structure yes what's your perfect structure if there
1: such a oh, gosh, my perfect structure. Well, uh, well, one could turn to Cicero and talk about the prologue and the division and the uh, reputation and then the and the, uh, the peroration and I'd probably left some bits out. i tell you a structure that I think works really well and it works in a whole host of different circumstances and, and writers get it very quickly. It's something called Monroe's Motivated Sequence and it was invented by a professor at Purdue University. It's very difficult to say, Purdue <laughs> University. In the 1930s, his name was Alan Monroe. And it's it, it's a, a structure in five stages. You see, the structure is everything. And the structure you're looking for is not the structure of a document. It is the structure of a performance. So we can get inspiration for structure from all sorts of other kinds of performance. Think of... Um, Uh, pop songs for example verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus where you come back to the chorus you come back to the chorus you come back to the chorus just as you would come back round and round to your take home message or think of a symphony which starts out with a with a reasonably fast first movement goes deep into something slow and reflective maybe then picks up with with high energy perhaps to do with conflict and then moves towards a, a what Cicero would call a peroration in its last movement and a big uh, simple crash at the end. Um, think of a joke or think of a magic trick. Think of what buskers doing in in Covent Garden or other places to hold their audience's attention. This is a structure that must hold your audience's attention. So it needs to include elements of suspense and surprise. It needs to include what's, what some people call hinges, turning points, where you... Might suddenly go in in a a new direction that's unexpected, or it's uh, a hinge that is, uh, by the time you get there, seemingly inevitable because of the structure of your argument. You also need to think about arguments, how you structure an argument. There's a great deal of talk about storytelling at the moment in speeches, but I'm not absolutely convinced that a good, well-constructed argument doesn't win over. A story in certain circumstances
0: they're not uh, mutually exclusive they're not
1: mutually exclusive no i was i was kind of speaking myself into a corner there no of course they're not and indeed many stories have the qualities of argument about them there there are all sorts of interesting kind of hidden connections under the surface between these structures so we're looking for a the, the structure of a performance and what monroe's motivated sequence does is provide a a sense of anticipation and unease at the end of each stage. So the first stage of Monroe is drawing uh, is doing or saying something that captures your audience's attention. So you don't necessarily start just by introducing yourself. You might start with a shocking statistic, or a story that goes in an unusual direction, or um, a fact that 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 the audience might find arresting or interesting so you've got the audience's attention at the end of stage one they're wanting to know what you've got to say next at stage two remember a speech is always talking to an audience it's never talking about something so in in stage two you are addressing a need in the audience a lack a problem a conflict uh, a choice that needs to be made whatever it might be And you are painting a picture of that need in vivid enough terms that the audience by the end of stage two is uh, desperate for a solution. So at stage three, you address that need or meet that need. Uh, This is probably where your take home message might appear. And you talk about uh, how you or whatever it is you're talking, uh, whatever your subject is, your topic is, can address that need. But what you don't do is go into it in great detail because the audience won't remember. But what you're trying to do is get them to want that solution. You hold off a little longer. You, the four, at the fourth stage, you visualise a future in which either that need has not been met, that solution has not been implemented, or in which it has been implemented. So, you know, either dark or light or possibly both. By which stage you have engaged not just the rational aspects of your audience's minds, but also their imaginations, their emotions, their desires, their senses even. So by stage five, they're ready to take action. And stage five is precisely that, the call to action. So these five steps, capturing attention, stating a need, addressing the need, visualising the future, call to action. Make a really good, solid framework, especially if you're working at speed, you know. You can just kind of bolt it together and you've got a structure that will work. And that that really matters. These people are often working at very great speed, under great pressure. And they also have to find ways of cutting through vast amounts of detail. And this structure, I think, will help you to do that.
0: So long as you can sell it to all the gatekeepers who are going to be filtering it out before it gets... Yeah, to you. yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it goes around all the departments of NATO or, um, you know, the American administration or whatever it may be. And it comes back um, just a heap of Lego bricks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's why you have to have this direct connection with your speaker. yeah
0: We haven't addressed, actually, one of my biggest questions. <clears> so let's finally address it, which is about... Any advice you'd give to someone who wanted to get into speech writing? So maybe they're a copywriter or they're working in policy or something. How would they get into speech writing?
1: <clears throat> yes, that's a very good question. Um, look for opportunities. The, if you're in an organisation, if you're a copywriter, for example, um, or you're in a comms department, which many of our colleagues are, uh, then there, opportunities will arise. Grab them. Just go for them and give it a go. Try and create something and see how you get on. Uh, you may need to you know, negotiate various, um, uh, as you say, gatekeepers on the way. But uh, that's one way to do it. There are very few posts with the name speechwriter attached to them. There are some, but there aren't many. So most speechwriters find themselves writing speeches as part of another job. You can you could do it as a freelancer you know make yourself available and uh, you know offer to write you know a, a family speech for a wedding or a, a funeral or something uh, or, or for a local business. you could do that. I'm not aware of any particular academic course that you could take in speech writing, though I'm sure they do exist. I'm not aware of any so you could do. You could do that, you could find find your way in through through practising. You could start by maybe, you know, trying to become involved in editing or working in a team of, of other people working um, on a speech. There'll be plenty of speech texts around written by people who aren't speech writers that would benefit from being reworked and crafted in some
0: poeticized. way.
1: Poeticised. Yeah, poeticised. Just kind of aerated you know, you only have to... I was looking at a piece last week and the writer for this speaker had written a page of stuff that you couldn't actually speak anyway, let alone in front of an audience. So the opportunities are always there, you know, just as is with within copywriting. There is an awful lot of bad copy around and there are an awful lot of bad speeches that get made, that get spoken. So, um... Look for the opportunities to make a difference, I guess. That's, that's one way to do it. It's, not, it's almost certainly not going to be a, a straightforward kind of path that you're going to take. Speechwriter jobs do appear. The, the network that I mentioned, the European Speechwriter Network, uh, on its newsletter, does mention speechwriting jobs that come up every so often. Such opportunities do exist. But I imagine that, that if you're like most speechwriters, you're going to kind of wiggle in sideways somehow. Thank you so much. It's been
0: really illuminating. But before I let you go, quick fire round. I'm ready. OK, this is all about your habits and processes as a writer. Oh, yes. as a writer. OK, yes. fine, right. <laughs> uh, so what fuels your writing, copy tea or something stronger?
1: Well, it's interesting you should ask that question because I would have said Negroni. Um, which is, for those of you who don't know what Negroni is, it's a a classic cocktail. Uh, But for the last three weeks, I have been on a health kick, so I've been off caffeine and alcohol.
0: How have you survived?
1: Uh, Quite well, actually. Um, It means that my evenings are (laughs) a little clearer. Um, And so I, I would normally write in the morning and edit in the afternoon, you know like many, many writers, I suppose. So that would have been, you know, a double espresso and finish with a negroni. But um, now I'm afraid it's none of them until further notice.
0: I think you've already answered this question. Um, when do you prefer to write, are you a lark or an owl? It's Definitely honestly, a lark. Yeah.
1: Definitely a lark. My wife is an owl. So um, I, I disappear to bed at half past nine <laughs> with, my, with my bedtime book. And Gillian, my wife, disappears into her study and she's a poet and writes so we are very different in that respect but I'm yes uh, I definitely write in the mornings and edit in the afternoons
0: are you a planner or a plunger do you draft a detailed outline or do you dive right
1: in um I think I'm a bit of both probably in my in my professional work and the way I train of course I would emphasize planning but I always acknowledge the benefits of plunging in as well, because it can be much more creative to do that. The, the downside of plunging in is that you're going to have to plan at some point, so it becomes less efficient. But that's not necessarily a bad thing.
0: Your desk, is it clear or cluttered? A
1: very cluttered, I'm afraid. But I also have a very small office at the moment. I, in our last house, I had a nice big one, but my wife now has a nice office and I have the little cubbyhole. So um, everything is rather cluttered. It shouldn't be, though. It shouldn't be.
0: We all have our own ways of working. I suppose so. Um, your aural environment, is it clear or cluttered? Music or silence? Silence. All the better to hear those poetic phrases. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, 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 yes. Because, yes, it's because you're trying to hear a voice. Uh, whether you're Whatever you're writing, you're trying to write a voice. So uh, you need to hear that voice in your head. You need to make sure that it's the right voice, of course. It's either your voice or the voice of your speaker. And, I mean, if you're hearing multiple voices, you've got a problem. But I, I very, very definitely, when I'm writing, I need to hear the words and I take internal dictation. Then, of course, that, that's not the whole story. You then have to edit, of course. But I'm a great believer in... Being guided by the way you speak, not just in writing speeches, but in writing anything.
0: Who's your favourite writer?
1: Joseph Conrad.
0: Finally, your best writing tip.
1: Oh, I've probably just given it, haven't I? Write as you speak, by which I mean imagine speaking to your reader and write down exactly what you would say to them, because we will speak to different people in different ways. And if you're writing a blog post that's intended for you know a broad audience well imagine speaking to an audience in a room write down what you would say word for word and then edit
0: thank you Alan Barker really enjoyed talking to
1: you it's been a great pleasure thank you very much for having me
0: If you enjoyed the show remember to subscribe on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen and if you could leave a review while you're there that would really help me get the show noticed as ever visit goodcopybadcopy.co.uk for free tips and advice on writing and the writing life until the next episode bye from me